with these words, I think and declare, mother, friend, brother, and light shining down on us, sings the powerful voice of Mercedes Sosa and the iconic voice of Joan Baez. We here at Solutions to Balance, along with our guest today, Dr. Jim Handy and Stephen Kenzer, believe that if we all demonstrate an appreciation for life and view others, regardless of their geographic origins, as mother, friend, brother, the world becomes a more peaceful place. Hello, folks. We are Solutions to Violence. We're happy you could join us today. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you would like to share your views with us, you can do so by emailing us at solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. We're your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Handy and Stephen Kinzer. Jim Handy is currently the History Department Chair at the University of Saskatchewan. He is the recipient of College of Arts and Science Humanities Teaching Excellence Award 2007, the winner of the J.W. George Ivan Award for Internationalization, University of Saskatchewan 2004, the author of Apostles of Inequity, Rural Poverty, Agrarian Capital, and and a fairy dust of political economy in Britain, 1760 to 1860. Revolution in the countryside, rural conflict and agrarian reform in Guatemala, 1944 to 1954, and gift of the devil, a history of Guatemala. David Kinzer is an award-winning foreign correspondent who has, who has covered more than 50 countries on five continents. His articles and books have led the Washington Post to place him, quote, among the best in popular foreign policy storytelling, end quote. He is a former correspondent from the Boston Globe and the New York Times. Dr. Kinzer was the New York Times Bureau Chief in Nicaragua from 1983 to 1989 and the author of several books. He is uh, Stephen Schlesinger, co-author Bitter Fruit, The Untold Story of the American Coup in Guatemala. He also penned Blood Brothers, Life and War in Nicaragua, as well as The Brothers, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, and Their Secret War. He is currently a senior fellow at the Watson Institute and Public Affairs at Brown University. So, Dr. Handy, we'll start with you. Uh, two of your, Dr. Handy, are the devil, uh, history of Guatemala, as well as your book, Revolution in the Countryside, Rural Conflict and Agrarian Reform in Guatemala, 1944 to 1954. They are concerned with the suffering endured by the Guatemalan people. Give us a brief description of the struggle endured by the Mayans and Guatemalan people before 1944, for that revolution that brought the second democratically elected president, Jacob Arvins, to office. Hi, Jim and James. Thanks very much. And please call me Jim as well. I'm a historian and my students will readily tell you, you have just asked me a question that I can take a whole year to respond to. But the short version is that Maya and Guatemala were, and to some extent still are, caught in the grips of two forces that combined to impoverish them. First was racism, a prejudice against all things Maya that became harsher and more violent in the second half of the 
19th century. And the second of those things was a prejudice against peasant or small-scale agriculture. By the middle of the 19th century, Guatemalan elites, like those all over the world, were convinced that the key to economic growth was to push peasants from the land and turn them into laborers. So in Guatemala, this took concrete shape with the combination of the coming of coffee as a major export in the 1860s, and then following that, and the liberal revolution that occurred from 1871 to 1873 that brought large coffee estate, and in Guatemala we call them finca, finca owners to power in Guatemala. So coffee can be a miraculous crop. It can be grown on small plots of land. It can work well with the labor requirements in peasant agriculture. In fact, in free and fair market conditions, small-scale peasant coffee producers always outperform large-scale producers. And in some countries like Costa Rica, most famously, coffee helps strengthen peasant livelihoods and make peasants more prosperous. In Guatemala, Mayan peasants readily grew coffee, and many of them did so effectively well into the middle of the 20th century. But mostly in Guatemala, the state assisted these large-scale coffee producers, these fink owners, in what turned out to be the most voracious type of capitalist regime. The state provided large coffee estate owners with ready access to land, most often taken from Mayan peasant producers, and introduced a variety of measures to compel highland Mayan villagers to labor on coffee estates for very low wages and, in fact, very often for no wages, effectively. And they used old colonial types of forced labor. They used debt bondage abetted by alcohol and rum. And they used a vagrancy law to force these highland Mayan peasants to work in coffee pinkers. To give just one example, one highland municipality is estimated to have provided over 300 man days, and excuse the gendered reference there, of coerced or free labor a year to coffee estates and the, and the government during the 20th century. So there were three important results of all of this and getting to your answer. It impoverished highland villages by confiscating both land and labor from peasants. It deepened racism by because being Maya became increasingly associated with this desperate poverty in the highlands. And so the Maya were increasingly blamed for the poverty that was imposed on them. And any chance of developing a Guatemalan national culture that included a viable place for the Maya being Maya was rejected. And third, the institutions of the state, primarily the military, were used through the late 19th and in through the 20th centuries, primarily against an internal enemy, that is to force the Maya to labor on coffee. By 1944, then, when the 10 years of spring, which is this revolutionary period that we're talking about, is sometimes called, Maya highland communities had suffered nearly 100 years of this rapacious coffee regime. We can see one specific result in landholding. In 1950, the first real agricultural census was taken. This showed that 2% of the landowners controlled over 50% of the land. 88% of those who controlled land had less than 14% of the agricultural land in the country. Over half of their holdings were less than three acres in size. And this was also racial. Mayan farmers averaged seven acres each. Non-Mayan farmers averaged 60 acres each. 
Sorry, that's the end of my answer to that question. Okay, so Jim Handy, United Fruit Company figures into this, a U.S. company. Do you explain that United Fruit Company and its relationship with Guatemalan dictators was not the major cause of the problem faced by the Guatemalan people? But your book, Gift of the Devil, describes the living conditions of those Mayans that work for United Fruit as follows. Quote, the work was unpleasant, often carried out during the torrential rain season. And during harvest, workers were driven at an unceasing, relentless tempo. Housing conditions were abysmal. Whole families lived in 12-foot square huts with inadequate water and sanitary facilities. Malaria was a constant threat. In addition, as in the coffee fincas, workers were kept in debt to the company through easy credit available in the network of the company stores. Indeed, at times, the only wages offered were in the form of credit notes to be used at these stores, end quote. Linda Green's book, uh, Fear as a Way of Life, describes the struggles of those who live in the Alplano. The fruit companies and coffee fincas were on the coast and the lowlands. The situation that existed in both the Alplano and the lowlands explains the suffering endured by the Mayan population. So, Dr. Handy, you believe there were other factors that caused the poverty and oppression that existed before the 1944 revolution and after the coup d'etat that removed Arbenz from office in 1954. So it's an interesting question. So I think I, I already addressed some of the reasons and some of the background that led to the uh, poverty and oppression of uh, indigenous highland peasants, Mayan peasants in the period leading up to the revolution of 44. Certainly the dominance of the United Fruit Company was a factor in Guatemala, but it had a bigger impact on preventing democratic change than it had on the specific living conditions of Mayan peasants, for example. So the United Fruit Company was not just the largest landowner, but controlled much of the economy through its ownership of railways and port facilities and other things. And it had a tremendous political clout, both within Guatemala and with the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala and through the U.S. Embassy, the State Department. I think we can see this most clearly before the 44-54 period and the overthrow of Arbenz. We can see this most clearly, I think, in the 1920s. In the 1920s, like in 1944, a combination of reform politicians, students, intellectuals, and workers were able to elect a president, a guy named Carlos Herrera, who was pretty progressive, advocating moderate social reforms, and who worked to prevent the United Fruit Company from expanding from its base on the Caribbean side to the Pacific coast. And he wanted to end United Fruit Company control over the railways. There's a really interesting role that the United Fruit Company plays in convincing the State Department in the U.S. that these reform movements in the 1920s were actually led by anti-U.S. radicals who were influenced by Mexico, because Mexico had just gone through the revolution, and Germany, because Germany, of course, was they were gearing up for the Second World War. And so the United Fruit Company was able to convince the U.S. State Department that these expressions of democracy in Guatemala, desires for social change, these were, in fact, they argued these anti-U.S. sentiments driven by revolutionary sentiments elsewhere. So Carlos Herrera was soon overthrown, and the U.S. Embassy, despite theoretically favoring 
democratic alternatives, increasingly supported efficient military men for the presidency in Guatemala who could control this opposition to U.S. economic interests, would work against both Mexican and German influences in Guatemala. And this eventually leads to the U.S. supporting the election of General Jorge Ubico in 1931, and he stays in power till 1944, until he's overthrown, essentially, by the revolution in 1944. So the United Fruit Company has a big influence. The United Fruit Company has a tremendous impact, but that impact is mostly felt in its opposition to uh, worker and progressive democratic influence in politics. Is that, uh, I think I'm done? Okay, okay. So, Jim Handy, as you pointed out, Arborello was overthrown, but the, the Guatemalan people didn't give up. They elected Arbenes in, in, in the early 1950s, and he was also a reformer. He wanted to redistribute land previously owned by the United Fruit Company, legalize unions, increase the tax on corporations, establish a minimum wage, and improve the education system. Those changes, along with the fact that there were some within his administration that had communist leanings, were viewed by those of the Eisenhower administration uh, with alarm, Allen and John Foster Dulles in particular. However, is it fair to say that there were similarities between Arbenz, the Mexican president, Lorenzo Cardenas, who is viewed by historians as, as an extraordinary leader? We're wondering here. So yeah, this, that's an interesting question. Let me ask. Let me talk a little bit about Arbenz and Arevalo as reformers first, and then I'll uh, comment on the question about where Arbenz fits in comparison to people like Lazaro Cardenas and, and others, if I may. So though um, Juan Jose Arevalo, the first president of the um, 10 years of spring and Jacobo Arbenz are often lumped together uh, because of their relationship as the two presidents in this uh, reform administration, they were very different people with very different administrations. Arevalo did a lot but he didn't do an awful lot to benefit the poorest of the population in the countryside. Arbenz, on the other hand, after he comes to power in 1951, dedicated his administration to the poorest in the country. The people, and I quote him, he says, uh, he dedicates his administration to the humble people, the people with cheap cotton shirts and palm leaf sombreros who did not have shoes or medicine or money or education or land. The key to this was the agrarian reform, Decree 900, uh, passed in 1952. This Decree 900 was not directed primarily at the United Fruit Company, and it didn't take land primarily from the United Fruit Company. It took land from the United Fruit Company, there had a lot of it, but it was not directed primarily at the United Fruit Company. The law took land from all the very large private estates that were not using the land efficiently. And there was a whole bunch of uh, stipulations in the law about what that meant about using the land efficiently. And it gave it to poor peasants, both Mayan and non-Mayan poor peasants, who were organized into peasant leagues or rural workers' unions. So by 1954, so remember, this is passed in 1952. By 1954, two years later, when Arbenz was overthrown, over a million acres, a million 300,000 acres, in fact, had been expropriated. Sorry, let me go back to that. Uh, it was expropriated in an interesting way. They paid for it. But in Guatemala up to this time, rural land assessment for the purposes of taxes 
had been done voluntarily by the landowners. That is every 10 years, the landowner sent in a notice to the government saying, I think I'm prop my property is worth about this amount of money. So you pay this is what I'm going to pay taxes on. Obviously, if your city asked you to uh, determine how much your property was worth and they, they were going to tax you on what you told them, you would estimate pretty low, right? Guatemalan landowners did this too. So the Guatemalan government took them at the word and said, okay, we're going to pay you in bonds for the land we take from you based on your self-assessment of the property's worth uh, for tax purposes, eh? And in, for the United Fruit Company, that was something like $600,000. And the United Fruit Company wanted $15 million for their in bonds. All right. Anyway, so the Arbenz government took land from 1,300,000 acres from uh, states all over the country, from large landowners all over the country that weren't using the land effectively. And they gave that land to over 100,000 rural families, benefiting 500,000 people in a population of just over 3 million people at the time. So this was like an incredible change in the countryside in two years time. It led to unimagined benefits for those families that got land. We have testimony after testimony after testimony from them talking about how this land enabled them to rebuild productive peasant agriculture, to strengthen their family. They no longer had to go to the coast and work for months every, you know, and be away from their family, to rebuild community, uh, to envision all sorts of productive new things you could do for community building. Even more important was how the land was given out, I think. To petition for land, peasants needed to organize. That is, you couldn't just say, I want some land as an individual peasant. You needed to join a peasant league, and then the peasant leagues would, would uh, find a, an estate they think would be, would be affected by the land, and they would write a, a denunciation saying, we think this land should be taken, and this is why, and it should be given to us, right? So because peasants got organized, but the governing parties supporting the revolution were disorganized. They all supported the revolution, the governing parties did, but they were disorganized, they, they conflicted with each other. Politicians couldn't dominate the peasant movement. And so this meant that the peasant movement was independent, though supportive of our events and the revolution. And this led to a dramatic shift in political power and influence. From having no influence over the government, no power, suddenly the organized peasantry had power, influence, and could press the government to pass measures and support livelihoods and the majority of the population. So it was, a, it was a fundamental change from the bottom to the top in terms of how the economies of peasants were doing, how they could rebuild their families, how they could engage in, in politics, how they could press for new, more change. All of this in two years. So, you know, we could imagine what might have happened in 10 years had this kept going. And in, and in both in terms of benefiting the economy and in terms of developing a real organic democracy in Guatemala through this period. So if I, were if I were to compare our bands to any politician during this, any other Latin American politician through this period, I would say that one of the things that's striking about our bands is that he got over his fear. Like many urban middle-class politicians, Arbenz had been a military man. They had always been influenced by these arguments that if the indigenous peasantry organized, they would become violent. Arbenz got over that fear 
and supported them and realized that the only way that the revolution could actually succeed in benefiting these people with palm leaf sombreros and no medicine and, and nothing would be if he got over that fear and supported them politically. And to some extent, then he's kind of like Lázaro Cárdenas because Lázaro Cárdenas is able to do this in Mexico. But Lázaro Cárdenas does it in Mexico in a way that ties the peasantry in a way that controls the peasantry a little bit more than Arbenz did. That was both a strength of Lázaro Cárdenas in Mexico uh, and a weakness. And I think one of the things that happened in Guatemala and would have happened in Guatemala was that this independence of the peasantry, the difficulty in sort of casing them in a corporatist regime within the state would have meant a much greater change and, and democracy in Guatemala as we go forward. So I've been studying Arbenz now for, and the Arbenz administration for, you know, I started doing it about 40 years ago. I'm continually amazed that he was able to overcome these ingrained fears that he and the few people with him had about uh, everything they had been told about the peasantry up to that. You believe the reforms advocated by Arevalo, excuse me, Arevalo and Arbenz are both justified? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I think they were justified. I, I would argue that they're not just justified. I would argue that they were necessary. You couldn't imagine a revolutionary regime and a, um, a democratic regime which tried to, which was dependent, which had given itself over to the idea that they were going to benefit the poorest of the poor. They were dedicated to the poorest of the poor. You couldn't possibly reach those. You couldn't possibly live up to those promises unless you engaged in agrarian reform. In Guatemala, everything revolved around land and agriculture. The majority of the population, a huge majority of the population depended on agriculture for a living. A huge majority of the population were peasant farmers or wanted to be peasant farmers. The Arbenz administration's reforms were designed to live up to its promises. That's part of what makes Arbenz unique. And I was not that long ago at a, a celebration in Guatemala where, where they were celebrating what would have been Arbenz's uh, 100th birthday, were he still alive. And, it, and at that celebration where there were maybe 600, 700 people in this building to all there to celebrate this birthday, part of what we were all saying and they were all saying was he didn't lie. He didn't abandon us. He didn't not live up to his promises. He fulfilled his promises. Uh, now, the fact that he was overthrown in 54 means that he couldn't you know, he didn't have an opportunity to see if maybe later he wouldn't live up to his promises. But, but for that period of time, those reforms were quite, were quite remarkable. As I said, I don't know of any other place in Latin America within two years, they were able to effect such remarkable change and to do it democratically. I would stress one of the things that happens in Guatemala in the Arbenz period, quite apart from what the U.S. State Department was saying at the time, and may even have believed at the time, was that rather than constraining democracy in order to get this done, 
This was a period of a full flowering of democracy in Guatemala. This was the most democratic moment in Guatemala's history. And it was doing all of this. Okay. So, yes. Okay, Jim Handy. So, Arben's reform would have benefited the Guatemalan people, as you quite clearly explained. But the military coup that took out Arben's was supported by the American CIA because uh, the Dulles brothers, others within the Eisenhower administration, thought it was communist leaning. So let me try to um, respond to that question and to sort of flesh out a little bit more your my response to your earlier question, okay? And then we can we can we'll I think I can answer your question, Jim, with this. So if we think about again, if we go back and we think about what might have happened in Guatemala had Arbenz not been overthrown in 1954 by the combination of the U.S. military, the CIA, Guatemalan landowners, and State Department, and a whole bunch of other nefarious actors. Sorry, I've been working a lot recently on Guatemalan peasants and doing histories of Guatemalan peasants. So I'm a little bit caught up with the idea about Guatemalan peasant agriculturalists are tremendously efficient and productive. All of this stuff we have heard about peasants not being efficient, I mean, throw all that out the window. I mean, they're incredibly efficient and productive. They're poor because they don't have any land and they don't have any capital and their labor keeps being pushed off to go somewhere else and do all of these other kinds of things. So the reform in 1954 not only gave them some land to work, but gave them access to some small credits, agricultural credits through an agrarian bank, gave them nursing trees to engage in permaculture, provided them with breeding chickens to, to do chickens on their land. The reform had already meant that wages had increased tenfold during the course of the uh, revolution. So that uh, somebody who was going off to work on a coffee finca in 1953 was making 10 times as much as they would have made every day in 1944, right? So the agrarian reform, had it continued, wouldn't have meant the end of export agriculture in Guatemala, but it would have meant that it would have meant that Guatemalan agricultural producers could no longer compete simply by exploiting forced labor, simply by paying people nothing to work for. And the political changes that would have meant peasants continued to have some sort of political power would have meant that they could continue to maintain those things. So my vision of what would have come out of Guatemala in, after 1954 is a vision of a productive, small-scale agricultural system and large-scale agricultural producers who needed to be efficient users of labor rather than super-exploited users of labor. The counterinsurgency that happens after 1954 and the violence of that counterinsurgency, the all-encompassing violence of it, has its roots in both fear and hypocrisy. The forces that overthrew our bands needed to argue that they did so to save democracy from communism, right? They had said, Arbenz was communist, we need to overthrow him, we're gonna save democracy from communism. It was a lie, of course. They might've believed it, but it was a lie. Now, some people in the State Department might've believed it, but it was a lie. And who cares? Communist or not, he was democratic and doing what was necessary. So who cares as if one person said, some people got mental indigestion by reading Marx in this administration. They, 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 there was no indication that they were anti-democratic and doing everything else. So once the governments after 1954 had overthrown a democratically elected government in order to save democracy, 
then they continually needed to engage in deeper and deeper and deeper hypocrisy. As I once, as I wrote once, the government dissolved all political parties and called it democracy, attacked workers and called it social justice, oversaw the killing of thousands because they had dreamed of a different Guatemala and called it peace, and forced tens of thousands of peasants and rural workers from the land and called it agrarian reform. So having started on that path to defend anti-democratic regimes, they had to go deeper and deeper levels of hypocrisy and deeper levels of violence. And what were they defending? They were defending a system which meant that with, that with no significant labor or agrarian reform, which was now impossible in Guatemala. You couldn't possibly engage in an agrarian reform now in Guatemala, not a real one, an expropriated one. The majority of the population got poorer and poorer and poorer. In the years immediately after the overthrow of Arbenz, a million, a million of the million 300,000 acres that had been taken in the agrarian reform were returned to their former owners. 93% of the people who had gotten land through the agrarian reform were forced off their land that they had got. By 1979, so that's more than 25 years after Arbenz engages in this agrarian reform, 49% of the people who relied on agriculture had no land. Fewer than 500 people in a population of just under 10 million owned 22% of all of the land in Guatemala. And Guatemala land ownership was the second most inequitable land ownership in the world. The only place it was more equitable than was Brazil. By the turn of the century, that is by the end of the 1900s, according to the United Nations, 71% of the indigenous population lived in poverty. So all of that, I don't think anybody who engaged in the overthrow of Arbenz in 1954 envisioned a country in 1979 that was going to be so violent, so utterly destitute, so impoverished, so ungovernable in all sorts of ways. But all of that was the logical outcome of the overthrow of Arbenz in 1954. The United States was complicit with the overthrow of Arbenz, but also uh, the civil war that followed uh, because a lot of the soldiers, a lot of the uh, counterinsurgency that was involved in that civil war were trained at the School of the Americas in Columbus, Georgia. So in 93% of the killings, some 200,000 people, according to the Historical Clarification Committee, 93% of that 200,000 was killed by the counterinsurgency. So in terms of the Gold Americas, uh, now called the Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, because it has such a bad reputation, should the United States be engaging in, in such training, training or an insurgency to fight civil war in other countries? Uh, sorry, I know you're out of time, and I'll try to be as quick as I can here with, in my response to this. So um, no. There should be no School of Americas, whatever you call it. The U.S., of course, was com totally complicit in the violence of the counterinsurgency, wringing their hands about too much violence in Guatemala while they pointed out the people who should be attacked to the military and trained the military to attack them and torture them and disappear them more uh, effectively. Latin America is one of those few places in the world in which there's no real external military threat. It's one of those few places in the world which, in which in, through the 20th century and into the 20th century, in very, very few instances do Latin American countries attack each other. There is no need for militaries. 
Those countries that abolished their militaries, like Costa Rica did in 1948, you can see the results of those in social justice and real democracy in those countries that did this. So there is no need for militaries in Latin America. And there certainly is no need for the U.S. to be training militaries in Latin America. Oh, okay. And I know one of the responses to much of this would be just say the U.S. should never get involved in Guatemala, never get involved in any country. And I, and I agree with that in terms of being involved in terms in, 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 you know, in overthrowing governments or supporting the military, or even supporting the police in all sorts of ways. So I agree with that. Through more than 40 years of working in Guatemala and with Guatemalans, I have been most impressed with their tenacity, with their willingness to fight constantly against insurmountable odds time and time again to make change. They need help to do that. And the U.S. should, so here are a couple of specific things, I would say. The U.S. should strongly, immediately, and without reservation, support the U.N. Commission Against Corruption in Guatemala, the surge that was created. And it was recently disbanded by the president in Guatemala. The Biden administration, I would argue, should say to this guy, reinstate it and do it now. The U.S. should immediately provide aid money to assist uh, the Guatemalan economy, but it needs to do this carefully, providing the support for progressive and democratic community, peasant, and civil society groups, and not to the government agencies. And perhaps I think even more importantly, I think I would argue that the U.S. government and U.S. people, just like Canadian government, and I'm Canadian, by the way, and Canadian people, should strengthen their controls over mining industries and, and other investments in countries like Guatemala through transparency and corporate governance models require that those things do. I'm Canadian, so we have nothing to boast about here. In Guatemala, in large parts of Guatemala, Canada is uh, considered to be synonymous with these horrible mining companies. So we need to have this kind of transparency in corporate governance that prevents mining companies from doing this. And we should stop buying palm oil from Guatemala. Make sure we buy coffee from fair trade and cooperative standard prices and do all of those other kinds of things. So I think we need to be deeply involved as U.S. citizens and as U.S. government and Canadian citizens and Canadian government, but we have to do it right. Okay. So Jim Handy has explained how the Guatemalan people have suffered under the yoke of military dictatorship with the blessing of U.S. Guatemalan policy and how their one opportunity for reform under the democratically elected Arbenz was crushed by a counterinsurgency supported by the United States CIA. Stephen Kinzer, co-author of Bitter Fruit, American Coup in Guatemala, will explain how the coup d'etat was executed and why that coup was organized, equipped, and conducted by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. So, Professor Stephen Kinzer, uh, Bitter Fruit, the story of the American coup in Guatemala, explains in graphic detail how the American Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, organized, equipped, and supported, meaning they were participants in the counterinsurgency that took out the legally elected Jason Arbenez in a military coup d'etat. Tell us about the connections between the counterinsurgency and the CIA. How were those connections established? Who was involved? The 1954 coup in Guatemala 
was conceived and directed by the American CIA. The United States government had become concerned about what was happening in Guatemala. We felt that leftist influences were becoming too strong. And this was borne out when the Guatemalan Congress passed a land reform bill that affected the interests of the United Fruit Company. That company was uniquely powerful in Washington. It had tremendous connections up to the highest level of the Eisenhower administration. It felt itself under attack by a government in Guatemala that was dedicated to dividing up unused estates and handing out the land to poor peasants. The US government then uh, took the Guatemala problem one step further by deciding that any country, any government that would obstruct or bother or try to regulate a major American corporation must be a strategic enemy of the United States. We then posited President Arbenz's government as a kind of crypto ally of the Soviets or of international communism. So motivated by these two forces, number one, the desire to protect a big American corporation and to be sure that a bad example might not be set in Guatemala that other countries might follow. That is the example of trying to regulate big American corporations. And on the other hand, the Cold War fear, much exaggerated, that Guatemala was going to be uh, the beginning of an enemy alliance in the Caribbean, motivated the United States to swing into action in, in Guatemala. So the CIA was assigned the job of coming up with a plan for overthrowing the government of Guatemala. It did come up with that plan. It carried out that plan. Without CIA involvement, the government of Guatemala would not have been overthrown in 1954. Okay, yeah, sure. But the United Fruit Company had a long history in Guatemala, starting back to the late 1880s, 1887, I believe. And they actually did confiscate land from Mayans, other Guatemala citizens. So the fact that Arbenz, during his administration, redistributed that land, paid them for that land uh, based on property taxes at that date. I don't know if that's, I don't see how that's a uh, nefarious activity on the part of uh, the Arbenz government. The land reform project in Guatemala was actually quite moderate in many ways. Uh, it was somewhat modeled after the Homestead Act uh, that opened up lands in the mid, what's now the Midwest of the United States. It's important to note that the Land Reform Act in Guatemala affected only properties of United Fruit Company that were not being used. All the properties that United Fruit Company had in production, all the places where they were growing bananas were immune to this law. It was only aimed at land that was lying fallow. And the United Fruit Company had over half a million of acres of the best land in Guatemala that it wasn't using. It claimed that the reason for this was for security in case there was some kind of a crop disease or some problem in their existing plantations, they'd have other land to go to. But the real reason was that if that land were made available to ordinary peasants, they wouldn't feel the need to become contract laborers on the banana farms. So it was the goal of the land reform movement in Guatemala and that Decree 900, which was the name of that law, uh, to take lands that the United Fruit Company owned and wasn't using, refer to the compensation. You're, you're absolutely right. So 
what happened was uh, these large owners, principally United Fruit, uh, under previous governments, United Fruit had the privilege of valuing its own land for purposes of taxes. So they would value, tell they would tell the government how much their land was worth and then pay a moderate amount of taxes. So when the land reform happened, the government just pulled out United Fruits tax forms and said, you yourselves have told us how much this land was worth when you declared it for taxes. So we're going to pay you the amount of money that you said it was worth. The United Fruit Company went crazy when they got this note and they demanded 10 times more. Very interestingly, the note in which the Guatemalan government was informed that offer that you have made to United Fruit is not acceptable. You must pay 10 times more. Did not come from United Fruit. It came from the government of the United States. So there you see already that uh, the fruit company was intimately connected to the U.S. government. And the government saw its role as protecting that corporation and its interests in Guatemala. Yeah. And you mentioned the fact that high-level officials here in the United States were connected to United Fruit. John Foster Dulles, at that time, 1950s Secretary of State under Eisenhower. Alan Dulles, Director of the CIA under Eisenhower. So they had a great deal of influence with the Eisenhower administration, correct? John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles had been partners at a famous New York law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. In fact, John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State in the 1950s, was the managing partner of that law firm for decades. This was not a normal law firm like you imagine a law firm to be. It had a specialty. The specialty of Sullivan and Cromwell was protecting big American corporations in their actions overseas. Every major American transnational corporation had Sullivan and Cromwell as its international lawyer. And the reason for that was simple. Every time a company had a problem in another country, Sullivan and Cromwell had ways and networks and people it could send that could force that government to treat American companies the way they wanted to be treated. So John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles actually worked directly with United Fruit. It was John Foster Dulles as a lawyer who negotiated the contract under which United Fruit was allowed to accumulate these vast amounts of land, um, most of which it never cultivated. Alan Dulles, who later went on to become the CIA director, also went to Guatemala, like his brother did, on United Fruit Company business. Alan Dulles was also on the board of the bank that was the financial agent for United Fruit. So before coming into government, both Alan Dulles CIA director in the 1950s, and John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State in the 1950s, were lawyers for United Fruit Company. When they saw the land reform being put into place, they were horrified, but they were not able to act against Guatemala. Once Eisenhower came into office and appointed those two brothers to high positions, they acted on a previously established view that the government of Guatemala was hostile and had to be destroyed. Okay. And yeah, and this was during the time of the Joseph McCarthy era when communism was seen as a huge threat. Walter Hickson points out at that time, the United States, many people had a psychic vision of communism based on an emotional response rather than reality. So that that enabled the Dulleses to, to make great speeches about communism in the United States and convince the American people that, that it was a threat when really there's no threat there. 
The Cold War mentality was probably one of the most powerfully developed national narratives in history. Uh, the, many Americans, conditioned by the media and our political leaders, came to see communism as a mortal threat, not only to the United States, but to the possibility of all meaningful human life on Earth. Beyond that, Americans were led to believe that communism was relentlessly aggressive and expansionist. Uh, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, repeatedly used the image of communism taking one country after another until the United States was left alone and would have no choice but to surrender or uh, launch a self-destructive war. We were then told within that framework that Guatemala was the latest cat's paw for international communism. We've wildly exaggerated what was happening in Guatemala. In fact, Guatemala's great crime was that it had broken out of the syndrome of pro-business, pro-army dictatorships and had moved toward democracy. Because Guatemala had become a democracy, its government had to respond to the most urgent problem the country had which was not enough land for people to live on. And this was a society in which if you didn't have land, you didn't eat. There were huge amounts of unused land and also huge numbers of peasants who desperately needed land. It was Guatemala's crime to put these two together and to decide that the unused land owned by United Fruit Company would be best used to feed ordinary Guatemalan families, most of whom were of Mayan Indian descent. That decision, not just by President Arbenz, but by the entire Congress of Guatemala, was what struck terror into the hearts of corporate America and led to the 1954 coup in Guatemala. So Jacob Arbenz, the second legally elected president in the history of Guatemala, 1954, decides that he's gonna, he's gonna be a reform president. And so part of the Reform Act was the Reform Land Act that redistributed the land, a lot of it owned by the United Fruit Company. And that is what angered and threatened, I guess, the Eisenhower administration, the Dulles's, others among the Eisenhower administration connected to the CIA. CIA had transitioned from agency that was about gathering information to an agency that had a paramilitary operation. So that is the reason for the attack against Guatemalan people in 1954. So give us a brief summary of the military attack against the Arbenz government and the Guatemalan people. How visceral was it? How many lives were lost? Were the C-47 airplanes that flew over Guatemalan City June 18, 1954, piloted by CIA operatives? Other connections, maybe? Once the CIA decided to carry out its operation to overthrow the government of Guatemala, it opened up large station outside of Miami. It was the biggest station the CIA had ever built. It was like a little quasi-military base. The coup plot was quite involved and convoluted. There was never any sense that the United States could militarily overthrow Arbenz. He was highly popular. So we use a somewhat different plan. We found a cashiered Guatemalan officer who agreed to pose as the liberator, the one who would lead the liberation army. And we got him some followers inside Honduras, the neighboring country, 
And on the appointed day, we told this guy named Castillo Armas to drive across the border, followed by his men, and then just stop at a spot about five miles inside Guatemala, and then don't do anything else. The CIA would take care of all the rest. What then happened is that the CIA organized a very sophisticated radio network that claimed to be the radio of rebels operating inside Guatemala. Actually, it was all from tapes that were made in Miami and in neighboring Central American countries. These radio broadcasts created the sense in the population that there was a mass movement going on inside the army and that there was a true revolution against President R. Benz. In addition, the CIA used its own aircraft, which it painted to look like Guatemalan Air Force planes, and (laughs) dropped bombs and leaflets in strategic places in Guatemala. This created a sense of chaos and panic in the upper reaches of the military. It was clear that the United States was behind all of this, and that it wasn't going to end, or it was just going to continue escalating until Arbenz was gone. And so with a good push from the CIA, military officers overthrew Arbenz. They then placed in power one of their own, a general, but this guy was also a supporter of the Arbenz reforms. The Americans didn't like that. So he only lasted a day or two until we finally pushed him out. And ultimately this so-called liberator, this bogus leader of a non-existent army was blessed by the United States, became the new president of Guatemala and carried out a wave of fierce repression. There were many more deaths in the first months of the Castillo Armas presidency than there had been during the so-called rebellion, which really didn't cause very many casualties. But once Castillo Armas took over, all labor unions were banned, the Congress was closed, newspapers were shut down, there was fierce repression, there were executions, and Guatemala, some years later, fell into civil war that lasted for 30 years. During that civil war, something like 200,000 Guatemalans were killed, almost all of them unarmed Mayan peasants. That's more people than were killed in political violence in all the rest of Latin America combined during that period. So the coup that the CIA launched in Guatemala in 1954 wound up not only destroying democracy in that country, uh, but setting off a military conflict, uh, which is one of the most tragic in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. So, but the CIA history is pretty interesting, especially during that time. Your chapter in Bitter Fruit, labeled Operation Success, explains that the CIA, during the Eisenhower administration, under the directorship of the Presbyterian Allen Dulles, it was transformed from an organization whose principal purpose was to gather intelligence to an organization that was not only allowed to conduct covert missions, but included paramilitary operations. Tell us about that transformation. Was it a mistake under the National Security Council charter to allow the CIA to conduct paramilitary operations in foreign countries? The CIA was created by an act of Congress in 1947. One of the co-authors of that act was Alan Dulles, who went on to become the CIA director uh, during the 1950s. In that National Security Act that created the CIA, there is a clause that says the CIA may carry out such operations as may from time to time be directed by the President of the United States. So that's a very 
general and a very broad statement under which you could probably include anything you wanted to. Now, Alan Dulles went to work for the CIA when Harry Truman was still president. And one of the first things he did was to write a memo saying, we have to overthrow the government of Guatemala. But Truman and his secretary of state, Dean Anderson, absolutely refused to do that. And they sent the note back saying, essentially, no. Then things changed when Eisenhower came into office. Truman had used the CIA for intelligence gathering and even for covert action, but he drew the line overthrowing governments. That he never approved. When Eisenhower came to office, that changed. In 1953, only about six months after Eisenhower had taken office, the CIA overthrew the government of Iran. That went so well, Eisenhower was thrilled with the idea that covert operations could succeed. And less than a year later, we overthrew the government of Guatemala. That is what led the CIA into the golden age or dark age, if you want to call it that, of covert action and government overthrows. Okay. So John Coatsworth, who wrote in the introduction to Bitterfruit, explains that the American CIA was intimately involved in the Guatemalan Civil War. The CIA continued to support Guatemalan military dictatorships like that of Reyes Mott, whose military ravaged the countryside, often killing innocent women, men, and children, abducting others. What's your take on CIA involvement in the Guatemalan Civil War after the military coup d'etat. There's no doubt that the CIA remained interested in Guatemala after it succeeded in overthrowing uh, the government in uh, 1954. Then when the Civil War began, it erupted in the 1960s, it continued at a lower level into the 1970s, then exploded again with terrific ferocity in the 1980s. For the whole period of that war, the CIA and the US government in its other agencies were deeply involved. During the 1980s especially, the Reagan administration saw the prospect of a revolutionary victory in Guatemala as a horrific challenge. Bear in mind at the same time, there was a leftist insurgency going on in El Salvador and the left-wing Sandinistas had seized power in Nicaragua. So all the stops were out and the United States vigorously supported Guatemalan governments, including that of General Rios Montt. Later, Rios Montt became the only former leader of a country ever to be convicted of genocide in a court in his own country. But at the time he was in power, President Reagan spoke very warmly of him, said that he had gotten, quote, a bad rap on human rights uh, and essentially encouraged him to carry out a campaign that was later judged in Guatemalan courts to have been genocide. So the CIA involvement in Guatemala did not end with the 1954 coup and in fact uh, intensified as the Guatemalan military used horrific tactics to suppress a re revolution in the 1980s. Okay. And you pointed out earlier that Carlos Armas had been installed as president, former military officer of Guatemala in 1954 as after the coup. So the RRS installation reestablished government via austere dictatorship and touched off a civil war that lasted 36 years. Many of the Guatemalan military who supported the Guatemalan government during those years, often with savagery, were trained at the School of the Americas in Columbus, Georgia. Leslie Gill, in his article, quote, the School of the Americas, military training and political violence in the Americas, end quote, 
Duke University Press 2004 states, quote, so widely documented is the participation of the school the school's graduates in torture, murder, political repression throughout Latin America that in 2001, the school officially changed its name to the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. Why? Are most Americans not aware of the military installation? And should the Biden-Harris administration shut it down? The School of the Americas, as it was traditionally called, and which now has this new convoluted name about Western Hemisphere security, uh, has been a central part of training generations of military officers in Latin America. So it's a U.S.-operated military school. It was originally based in the Panama Canal Zone. In fact, I went to visit it there when there still was such a thing as the Panama Canal Zone. Over the years, dictators and torturers in many Latin American countries have turned out to have education at the School of the Americas on their resume. At this school, uh, an ideology was inculcated. And that idea was that anything you do to fight communism or leftist political action is justified. Latin American officers took this home and that resulted in horrific regimes based on torture from Brazil and Uruguay to Chile and Argentina and other countries, including in Guatemala. There are constant demonstrations, uh, particularly by religious groups around uh, the facility there where these officers are trained. But all the attempts uh, to force a closure of that school have been met with uh, the response that uh, we need to train Latin American officers. And uh, this is just something logical for America to do. Looking at the results, what has come out of that school, I think you could make a strong case either for abolishing it or for radically changing its curriculum so that it doesn't spread an ideology throughout the hemisphere that ultimately results in people being oppressed and killed. All right, thank you. Folks, we're out of time. We want to say thanks to our guests today, Dr. Jim Handy and Stephen Kinzer. The Solutions to Violence program that features Jim Handy and Stephen Kinzer will be repeated Tuesday, March 2nd at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, March 3rd at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Jim Handy and Stephen Kinzer will be placed in our archives Wednesday, March 3rd. To listen via our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Jim Handy and Stephen Kinzer. Today's program that features Handy and Kinsey is the third program in a three-part series on Guatemala. We hope you have enjoyed our series. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you and may even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. Please respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at solutiontobalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.